This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 20th episode of The Quarterbin, I'm looking at Wonder Woman number 10 from DC Comics, cover dated November 1987. I was just half a year out of college and five months into marriage. Just a kid. But enough about me, because I'm not looking at this issue alone. As a matter of fact, I didn't even pick this issue. That was done by my guest. The first guest ever on this show, and only the second in the history of the entire relatively geeky family such as it is. It's my pleasure to welcome into the quarter bin from all over the internets and the potosphere, Michael Bailey. <laughs> Hello, sir. Thank you. It's uh, it's it's an honor being the second. I mean, I I couldn't expect uh, to to go before Luke Jack and Eddie. Jack and Eddie. We're glad to have you here in the low rent district. It does sort of oh. smell like the '90s in here. Do you notice <laughs> that? Is that just me? Well, that's just because most of the quarter books are probably from the yes. '90s. <laughs> The sign inside the store, you know, you know, when they announce the upcoming quarter bins coming out every three or four months, you know, they put up the big sign and one of the taglines is, see what the 90s were all about. <laughs> that, at, at, at least they understand. And the 90s had at least three distinct smells to them. You had, like, in the beginning of the 90s when everything was printed on the ultra cheap paper. All right. And I, and I don't know what it is about the paper and the ink they used, but like especially Marvel books from about 1989-1990 smell like chemicals. <laughs> and then at the end of the 90s the paper stock was better so you don't get as much of an odor, but they're just heavier. One of the things I liked about the 90s, you can tell a few issues before a comic is going to get canceled. This is true more in Independence, where I, I did some of mine, or maybe late 80s and 90s, where it would start off on the glossy paper. Yeah. <laughs> and then by about issue 8, it was on the cheaper than newsprint, and by 10 it was gone. You could sort of, at least they were announcing their intentions in advance, I think. Hey, our seed money is gone. <laughs> Well, Mike, I appreciate all the feedback you've sent in, both to this show and the Shortbox Showcase, as well as, it seemed like going out of your way to say nice things about what Emily and I have got going here on the network. So, Not at all, sir. I mean, it's there have been a few podcasts in my experience where I have started listening at the beginning and the hosts came out swinging. Hey Kids Comics is one. Uh, Trentus Mac and Magnus and I and I won't do the Dinner for Geeks version of the show. I'll just call it what it is. Uh, Trentus Magnus punches reality and everything you and Emily have done. Even the episode Emily recorded, I think, on her iPhone uh, sounded really good. And just the the quality of the show. And, and I'm gonna echo what Scott Rifen said on Facebook that you know a lot of us could probably learn a thing or two from your brevity and succinctness, which is amazing because you're bringing me on the show and I am the exact opposite of that. It will end up editing most of you out to keep us <laughs> under the time limit. You, you understand that in advance, right? I, I, I figured as much, yes. <laughs> now, I expect that most of my listeners are familiar with your podcasting work, but for the handful who may have come to this show from somewhere else other than your web of podcasts, tell us just a couple of places online where we can find your thoughts on comics. Well, there's Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. It's been the show I've been doing since June of 2007. Uh, it is not consistently weekly, even not even consistently bi-weekly. I get into these short bursts where I'm very consistent, and then life gets in the way. But it's just me talking about whatever really strikes my fancy in terms of comic books. Mostly superheroes, because that's where my heart lies. But I have tripped into other genres as well. Uh, there's also From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast where Jeffrey Taylor and I have been going through the post-crisis Superman world one half month at a time at this point. Uh, you're, making, you, you're making pretty good progress. You're about a third of the way through the era-ish. I, I coming would up say on a half. Yeah. We're coming up on a half. We're about to hit zero hour, which I think both of us are really excited about, uh, simply because I think that's where I... 
that's where I really kind of came into my own as an adult comic fan. Mm. You can find that at either the Superman homepage or my Superman blog, Fortress of Bailey Tude. There, I got two plugs in one. Very efficient. <laughs> uh, also, over on two True, the Two True Freaks Network, I am on Comics Monthly Monday with Scott and Chris. And recently, and I would have to say that you probably had a little bit to do with this, uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America has returned. <laughs> uh, you know, Scott and I had been trying to get that show back off the ground, and then somebody mentioned on their show uh, that Emily had done more episodes of her show than we had. And Scott and I were both very uh, flattered and hey when you mentioned <laughs> Bailey's Batman podcast, Death in the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke and Tales. So <laughs> I think you talked about that maybe on Tales. Because yeah. uh, I, I heard that discussion and you, you, you each took the right attitude, yes. which was that it was in love. Yeah. <laughs> And Emily uh, occasionally gets a hard time for not being as prolific as some yeah. of her fans would like her to be. <laughs> it's only because she's so good. But <laughs> I understand that, you know, she's got a lot more going on than podcasting. So I above all else. Also, recently, I have uh, jo- rejoined the panel over at the Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast. Oh, so I, I'm basically back in 2010 fighting form podcasting wise. One of the things I like about all of your podcasting efforts is that they're all really high quality. Oh, I appreciate that. Doing the views from the long box, the long form episodes of that where it's just you, where you run over an hour sometimes, just you, amazes me. Because by about, it's about 20, 25 minutes, I'm about done listening, <laughs> listening to me talk, and I'm, probably other people are tired of that as well. At least on Shortbox Showcase when we go long. At least that's me having a conversation with somebody. Since you do mostly solo work on this show, you know how hard it is to just kind of sit there with the microphone in front of you and your notes, and you don't know if bits are working, you don't know if the comedic timing is is there. You know, it's the closest I'll get to doing like a solo talk radio show. (laughs) Right. Now, after I roped you in to appearing on the show, I tasked you with the critical function of picking the issue that we would cover, I sent you a slightly abridged list of the books in the Quarterbin database, and you picked this one, Wonder Woman 10 from 1987. And I'll be honest, I was kind of surprised. So, general question about that. What is your history with Wonder Woman as a character in terms of reading and collecting? Uh, In terms of reading and collecting, I came really late to the game. Uh, For years, my main experiences with Wonder Woman were the super friends and I had her superpowers figure and as kind of time went on and me collecting back in the mid 90s when I started getting serious about buying back issues one of the runs that I kind of sought out was George Perez's run on Wonder Woman because I've heard it lauded so many times and it's generally considered to be one of the best runs of the character. Now, that's by modern audiences. Right. And and let's be honest, Wonder Woman hasn't had it exactly a stellar history, publishing-wise. Uh, there seem to be, like, good periods here and there. But in reading the very entertaining Wonder Woman, The Complete History by Les Daniels, I get the, I get the sense that it was just all over the place for decades. So... The main reason I was really seeking out the Perez is that when I was 12 years old, so this is the summer of 1988, I went into KB Toy Store. And they had started, for some reason, selling comic three-packs. Now, you're probably familiar with comic yes, three-packs yes. at drugstores. and I remember them through Sears, maybe? Is that possible? Or drugstores? Yeah. Yeah. So... And I remember when I was a little kid seeing them, but I hadn't really seen them all that much when I was really getting into comics. So walking in to KB, not only was it like a three-pack of comics, but they also came with clippable trading cards, like in the packaging. So it was all sealed up in plastic, and you opened it up, and there was like different superhero trading cards. And there were three issues of Superman that I already had, and then there was Wonder Woman 10 through 12. The Challenge of the Gods storylines. So I picked that up, and that's actually the copy of number 10 I'm holding right now is the one that I bought in the summer of 1988. And boy, does it look like it. (laughs) Covers bent, 
I mean, it's 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 a little messed up because I I read my comics right. and then reread them. Yeah, this and, is not a high gloss copy. This is a this is old fashioned newsprint. Yeah, and an so, old fashioned, pretty cheap cover. Reading that story when I was a kid, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like something that like made me want to go seek it out. So it was when I was uh, an adult that I really got into Wonder Woman, and I read through the Burn Run. Because when John Byrne came onto the book, I was just like, i got to get onto that. John Byrne's the reason why I got into comics in the first place. And I kept on with the character all the way through Greg Rucka, who is another one of those writers that I think really understood who the character was, or at least had a solid take on who she was as a character instead of trying to make her the female Superman. He embraced, much like Perez did, her Greek myth roots. You know, these are the gods. This is mythology. And he updated the mythology. But still, they were an important part of the world Wonder Woman was living in until it got all involved with Infinite Crisis. And even then, it was an entertaining read. So I really haven't had much experience with her post-Infinite Crisis. I tried reading the book, but it was just so late and then they got into the whole Amazon's attack thing, and that just completely soured me on it. And then I just got soured on DC in general, so I missed right. the whole Gail right. Simone run. But yeah, no, I, I, I love the character. Yeah, I had a pretty good run of this. The prior iteration of this book, maybe 80 or 90 books in the Ooh. 200s or so, from the mid-1970s into the early 80s. Jerry Conway, Marty Pasco, Len, Len Wein was writing them. Uh, I remember Huntress had a nice backup. Mm-hmm. in a lot of them. And this is a story I've told many times in just 20 episodes of The Quarter Bin, but those were among the books I sold in 1999 as part of our move from Virginia to Ohio uh, for the job that I still have. And this batch in particular, the Wonder Woman's, went for what I remember was a surprisingly high price on eBay. Uh, that's the w- one thing I remember when I sold, you know, sold these and the, the Warlords and the John Sable, some of those I've, I've uh, reacquired. My apologies, Mike. The All-Star Squadron run. Sold those <laughs> well, as you'll, well. You'll, you'll, you'll <laughs> want it back at some point. Yeah, I, that is know, true. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's funny that you're, that you're surprised by that, because I am too, because I've tried to kind of pick up some of the Bronze Age Wonder Woman. And I guess the print runs were low, because you really can't find those in the cheapy bins all that often. Uh, every once in a while, the comic shop I go to, which has a very healthy 50 cent stock, I mean, most of their back issues are 50 cents that aren't the kind of the higher quality books. And even then, they're three bucks a piece. But every once in a while, he'll get a run in there, but they'll be like water damaged. Right. Or right. they'll be not in the best of condition. And I'm trying not to buy just to buy anymore. So I kind of resist but yeah those man especially around the 200s and the 300s it, it gets kind of pricey yeah those are among the, the few that I divested myself of back then that have not shown up again in the quarter bins uh, all-star squadron would be another one of those runs because I find just in general I find very little from the 1970s uh, in there uh, but even 80s and 90s versions of Wonder Woman tend to not show up in there that's really odd, because I would have figured at least the, the 90s stuff would be in there. But uh, who am I to guess the, the, the fickle <laughs> the fickle finger of, of back-issue fate? Well, let's take a break here, play a promo. When we come back, we'll talk specifically about Wonder Woman number 10. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron.
The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.com. And we're back. Wonder Woman number 10 had a cover price of 75 cents, meaning I acquired this comic at a 67% discount. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, my daughter Emily actually bought this comic from the 25-cent box, so I guess I technically didn't pay for it at all. But as long as this comic lives under my roof, it plays by my rules. Now, the cover is a very nice George Perez number. Now, before we get to the synopsis, Mike, your thoughts on the cover? Do you have the fold-out cover? I do not. I have an old-fashioned cover. Now, the, the, the where the barcode is, is it a barcode or does it, it have like, a barcode. text in it? It is a okay. barcode. So we both have the newsstand version okay. of the cover. Because if I'm correct and remembering correctly, there is a gatefold version of this cover. That goes out further into the Olympian stuff. But, uh, to answer your question, I think it's a gorgeous That's cover. I, I totally agree. Uh, I'm a fan of Perez to begin with. Right. Uh, but I particularly loved his take on Wonder Woman. I love her battle armor. Uh, I, I You know, the shield, the cape, the helmet. Uh, you know, the Amazons in the upper left-hand corner. The right. gods looking on some looking down on her or the others kind of looking away like they're embarrassed to even be standing there right there. And, but my favorite is that amongst the many, the hundred hands, because I looked up what that word meant. There's eyes, these two red eyes just staring at you. It's a Ah, beautiful cover. I see that now. Yeah, it is certainly a detailed, terrific cover. It seems to me that it, it summarizes, you know, not just the scene, from a comic, which is pretty standard, but this, this summarizes the entire issue. Yeah, like absolutely. Said, there's Zeus and his comrades, sort of up in the background, looking down on our heroine, dressed in the battle armor. You got the inky black shadow hands, and the two eyes that I didn't see till just now are reaching out from below the stone staircase. So you've really got the 22 pages summarized in one. Mm-hmm. That's impressive. Now the story, Paradise Lost was written by George Perez and Len Wein, with art by George Perez and Bruce Patterson. The issue itself starts on Mount Olympus. Zeus is looking down, in more ways than one, on Paradise Island while Pan plays his pipes in the background. Zeus reflects on the fair Princess Diana, who recently thwarted Ares' mad scheme to destroy us all, which I assume happened somewhere in issues one through nine. Zeus spies on Diana and concludes that she deserves his special favor. And just in case we weren't sure what his special favor was, Pan agrees. It's only fitting that she should be the first of the Amazons to experience thy manly grace. Apollo warns that Queen Hera and the goddesses might not take kindly to Zeus's amorous affections, but that doesn't stop him. He's Zeus. While Diana and the Amazons ponder Diana's destiny in regards to man's world and the United States, Zeus's voice booms out over the island. For her triumph over Ares, the Princess Diana has earned a special gift, one which I alone am able to bestow. Diana is cautioned that she doesn't know Zeus's intentions, but her loyalty to the gods overcomes her mm, common sense. Zeus meets Diana in the air, and he is wearing nothing but a loincloth, a cape, and a smile. He offers her the experience of the ultimate sharing of flesh with spirit. Hera, who seems to be the brains of the operation, does not trust the big guy, reflecting that she has heard such beguiling words before by the sneering mouth of his treacherous son, Heracles. Diana tries to explain to Zeus modern American feminism that such decisions must be mutual, I cannot surrender that which is mine alone to give without a true feeling of desire and commitment, and she totally shuts down Zeus. But with a history of talking women into such relationships for millennia, occasionally tricking them into it, Zeus is not pleased with the refusal. 
I understand that thou hast dared to defy me, and for that thou must be properly punished. Hippolyta attempts to defend her daughter, who continues to refuse. Zeus is getting angrier and angrier, and just as it looks like he may be ready to slay Hippolyta, Zeus is pulled away from the scene by a mystical force. Who dares interfere now? Hera, wife, thou shalt pay for this. Hippolyta tends to her daughter, who is unharmed, merely shaken by the adventure. Diana realizes the severity of the situation. I believe in his heart the Almighty One thought he was rewarding me. To such a Zeus we are merely pets, and by daring to snap at him, I may well have doomed us all. Shortly thereafter, Diana is snapped up to Olympus to face Zeus's wrath, which Hera chides him for. Uh, Please, Zeus, a little less melodramatic. There's no need to shout. But Zeus keeps shouting nonetheless, delivering his version of justice. Diana must face a series of challenges designed to prove her worth, each one designed by another of the Olympian gods. He then shows her the gateway to the demon lair beneath Paradise Island. Many Amazons have perished over the centuries, guarding this cursed portal. Behold, child, and despair. Hera and Pan agree that these challenges are appropriate for proving Diana's worth, and she accepts the challenge with bravery and boldness. Zeus zaps her away from his presence. Then be gone, young Amazon. Either destiny or destruction awaits thee now. And Michael Bailey will tell us what happens next. On Paradise Island, in the royal chambers of the noble Hippolyta, the queen is having herself a world-class and justifiable meltdown over the challenge the gods have issued. To her mind, she should be the one being challenged, not her daughter. Diana points out that this is an opportunity to learn her true destiny, and only by answering the challenge shall she ever be whole. The queen asks if she would risk probable death once more without question, and Diana lays the whole It's the Will of the Gods rap on her, which leads Hippolyta to storm out of the room insisting that she is tired of being, like Mongo from Blazing Saddles, a pawn in the game of life. Midnight. Diana rides to the doorway where her true destiny and probable death reside. She thanks the Amazons that accompanied accompanied her, and with an iron will and a strength derived from the gods themselves, she pries the door open. A cold and fierce wind greets her as the locking bolt seeks to shut the portal. With the speed of Hermes, Diana wedges her dagger in the doorway to keep it open long enough to grab her precious weapons and descend into Pandora's box. The door seals behind her, and Diana is faced with a clear, if not trippy, set of stairs. On one of the steps, she finds a cartridge shell, like she saw in Man's World. She begins to wonder how it came to be where she was, but that doesn't last as her first challenge makes itself known. Okay, folks, I'm about to butcher a name. Hectaton Sherry's? Okay. I guess. Uh, which means hundred, the hundred-handed, by the way, attacks, and those inky black hands drag Diana down so that she can be consumed. The hundred-handed one, because I ain't saying that name again, gloats for a moment before Diana bursts free, and with the skill of her namesake, she hurls a spear into the creature's heart. Not done with venting her rage, she smashes into the stairs and causes them to rain down on that creature before getting her shield and continuing her quest. But she doesn't travel far before being faced with a sea of lava. At first, she's all like, I gots this because I can fly, before a column of flame nearly incinerates her. From behind her shield, Diana sees the next demon she must face. She has heard about this demon before. Even in man's world, its name is known. Diana thinks of her friend Julia, who thought it was only a legend. But Julia was wrong. The seven-headed Hydra is real. To be continued. You know, a dear friend once said to me, 
It's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. And we're back. Now, Mike, you mentioned uh, when you selected this book that you were a big fan of it and you told us the story of how you got uh, issues 10, 11, and 12. So sort of a two-part question. Before uh, reading it for the show, when was the last time you read this? Do you have any idea of that? And is it still as good as you remember it? 1997 was the last time I read it <laughs> because that's when I bought my huge chunk of Wonder Woman and read read through like the first like 30 issues of Perez's run. And it is, it, it's funny. I was, I was talking about this book with my wife uh, after I, I read it today in preparation for the show uh, and of that, how my perceptions of what goes on in it have completely changed since the last time. I mean, last time I read it, I was 21 single, you know, sensitive to, issues of women but not really hadn't really lived with one continuously for 14 <laughs> years so which i think kind of kind of changes your perspective and i've also learned a little more about the greek gods in that time period as well and i gotta i gotta say that it's as good as it was but it's a lot more disturbing uh than than i remembered it being you know you talked about prez really sort of getting the greek pantheon and I think he did get Zeus's character as to the sort of historical, legendary uh, version of Zeus, including including his willingness to have quality time with whoever wanted it or didn't want it at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I described the situation to my wife, and Rachel's first words were, "That sounds like Zeus." <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> now, I mean, for me, you know, I'm 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 glad I was married when I read this, or I might have been tempted to use some of Zeus's lines on women. I just don't think they'd be effective. I just... Yeah. I don't know. Just to, I mean, if you could pull off the, 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 the... You know, confidence sometimes wins out, so... You know, I mean, we've we've talked on the, the Short Box Showcase, and you've commented, and you've done a couple of cosplay episodes over there. I'm not sure I could pull off Zeus... With the, in, in the loincloth, loincloth, and, and the white cape. I just don't think hey there, that's a baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you're right. You, I mean, I, th I think you know. You read things as a 20 year old, and you read them as a grown man, and there is a, just a different. I mean, you noticed what was there before, yes. But whether what well, didn't affect it, you know, you know, the effect it had is is, is different. Well, it's just what what bothered me not so much that he propositioned her but you know knowing you know at least he t didn't turn into a swan i guess is the best thing to say there <laughs> that's right but but just his you know basically zeus is sitting there thinking you know she's really proved herself i need to get me some of that and that that's just upsetting that it's it it's like she wasn't given a choice yeah. so when she spurns him and it's not so much it's not even so much based on you know being in man's world which i think had a lot to do with it but the history that perez and 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 the the writers i forget who the the original scripter there was a there was an original scripter on the the first couple issues that uh, left eventually but you know the history they set up is that hercules and his men basically dominated the amazons and it was it's kind of a brutal and very disturbing backstory that they were basically allowed to live by themselves, you know, as kind of like 
not only at, you know in in self defense, but just something they were wronged. And now here comes Hercules's dad wanting to do right. basically the same thing to Diana, and Hippolyta just isn't having any of it. <laughs> and and by you know and and rightly so. It's kind of sad though that it leads into this really kind of epic challenge for Wonder Woman. But the only reason she has to do it is because she told him no. So it's not like she's even being tested as a hero. She's being punished. And hopefully she'll survive. But she looks at it as a test. Her mother doesn't. And it's just... This Wonder Woman was so different from the previous incarnation in my experience with her. You know, this Wonder Woman was a lot more innocent, I guess, is the best way to say it. She was not as worldly. It seemed like when Diana in the Golden Age and Diana, you know, when when they kind of updated it for Earth One, she was pretty much knowing what she was getting into. And in this version, she goes to Man's World and has no idea and is kind of a babe in the woods until Julia and Vanessa kind of take her in and teach her. So when she comes back, she still has that kind of starry-eyed, oh, it's Zeus. What, what could possibly go wrong? Right. I do like the fact that we're given a variety of perspectives on Zeus, really a variety of female characters Mm -hmm. in terms of their relationship, you know, to Zeus. Like I said, she's sort of the innocent worshiper and then Hippolyta knows a little bit better. And, and basically Hera, you know, just sort of throws her hands up and just tries to talk him down on occasion. But it's like, really (laughs) again, come on. It's kind of funny seeing her wear the Wonder Woman outfit on Paradise Island. Because yeah. at the beginning of the issue, she was kind of in her, you know, casual wear. It's like on Star Trek The Next Generation when they go on shore leave and they'd have like the after eight, you know, <laughs> flight suits. That's right. Uh, and then she's in a totally another outfit, uh, proving that I think Perez was hoping for an action figure line. Uh, and, and, and let me tell you, if they had, had had put out a figure of her in the in the in the armor and the cape and the helmet, I, I would have bought that because yeah. it's a it's an attractive outfit. But the cool thing is about this storyline in general, not to not to give away too much of it, it really goes into the history of why there are so many so much American iconography into her costume. And yeah, all yeah there, there's sort of a, a, a hint of that at the beginning, where they're sort of talking about Diana and some of her legacy and her and her destiny, and they've got you know, an American flag as one of the things that they're looking through in terms of their, her mementos almost. I, I don't know if it's in the next issue or in the third issue, but it's it's a really cool revelation that kind of ties a lot of the things together. The weird thing is is in the third issue in in issue 12 it starts tying into millennium oh wow i don't know if you're overly familiar with millennium as a story but one of the one of the side things of that is that there were manhunter sleeper agents that every character was given wonder woman's is really strange and not what you would expect (laughs) you know this challenge of the god ends with her getting involved with the millennium storyline but no it's a fantastic story that just goes Again, to the heart of who this Wonder Woman was. I mean, she's facing, you know, it's action because you have her chasing, you know, facing all of these obstacles. There's a lot of Greek legend thrown in there and myth. So you have that going for it. It's a little superhero-y, but also it layer the, the story itself and the character characterization of Diana and the woman she encounters just makes everything work. So this is very much the the first chapter of a very epic storyline that only took three issues to tell. I like that in concept. I like that yeah. short in and out arc. Mm-hmm. And and because it's Perez, you really f- you don't feel like it's rushing through because you know his his uh, page design is such that you know he you know I'm looking at pages sixteen and seventeen just because the book's open to that. And I'm counting eight panels on one page, seven panels on the next, and then nine on the next one. And it's just, you don't get that. It's like Greg Rucka in an interview years ago on on Word Balloon was talking about how he was reading a Neil Adams Batman issue that had 19 panels on a page. (laughs) And how you would, his exact quote was, you would have to hold a gun to an artist's head today to get that. And it's not... 
really anything against the artist because they're playing to the market that they're in. They're they're professionals. They're they're doing this probably because they love it. But at the end of the day, they're doing this to get paid. They're going to do what their editors want them to do, basically. So it, we just happen to be lucky enough that this is a Wonder Woman story told at a time where Perez was basically um, at the height of his game. Yeah, I think in both the in both the story and the art. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The, there's a beautiful. Uh, I'm looking at page eleven and twelve. It's like you said, one page has, depending how you count it, thirteen panels. Mm-hmm. And then next to that is a gorgeous one-page splash of Diana being called up to Zeus and and the Olympians. And what do just, you think of the uh, M.C. Escher-style Mount Olympus? You know, you have to visualize a realm like that in some way. Yeah. And, and I think doing it as an other, in however you visualize that, is the right step. It can't just be bigger. It can't just be bolder or more colorful. It has to be other in some way. Mm-hmm. So I like it. Yeah, I was, I was always a fan of it. Uh, I, I think... Uh... I think Byrne played a bit with it as well in his run, but during his run, Diana actually became a Greek god, right? So, or a goddess. So that was kind of an interesting storyline. And there uh, was a lot of you know, the first you know, sixteen, seventeen pages of this is pretty much talky talky, mm-hmm. but it all worked. I mean, it was dramatic. You know, well, there, was, the, there was not a traditional action sequence until the last eh, four or five pages, but it was dramatic, uh, melodramatic. In the best possible sense of that word, you know, the people in these conversations, the conversations themselves were literally larger than life. Mm -hmm. And and, and I think you got that. It was not a talkie talkie that brought you down or that you just had to slog through to get to the fighty fighty. The great thing about it is of the intrigue of the of the the politics of the Olympian gods, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term. I mean, Pan is trying to curry favor with Zeus in every way, Pan sets all of this in motion. He is the catalyst because without him sitting there playing his music and going, you know, you know, she's she's kind of hot, and uh, you know, you're you're Zeus, so come on, come on. She deserves a prize, and and you can deliver that. <laughs> and Zeus thinks, yeah, you're right. But you yeah, also- I mean, it's not like Zeus took a lot of convincing. That that, that no, that's no, all no, I'm no, saying. No, no, no. He, you know, he, he's 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 a simple man with uh, with very specific needs. But also, we get the intrigue of the fact that the council around Queen Hippolyta. And every time I hear the name Hippolyta, I think of the episode of Justice League Unlimited where Lorraine Newman plays uh, Medusa, and they they kind of played her as like you know a woman who had been on the inside. So she's sitting there talking about Cersei. She goes, Hippolyta, Hippolyta, all the time, Hippolyta. <laughs> so every time I hear Hippolyta, I have I want to follow it in my head with Hippolyta all the time, Hippolyta. But, but they're discussing what to do with the artifacts Diana has brought back because unlike the original origin, this, you know, Diana going to man's world was not supposed to be permanent. She was there for a very specific function. And now that she's back... They're like, well, what do we do with all this stuff? And one of them is very clear. I say we keep it to ourselves. We don't need to sully our sisters with this outside influence and all that. The great thing about this is that you don't have the action until like 17 pages into the book, but you don't care because you're just drawn in by the drama, which is why I always thought that Perez's run would make an excellent television series. And the animated film that came out did not adapt it, but it touched on a lot of the stuff that he did. Obviously, there's a comparisons between Wonder Woman and Thor mm-hmm. in, the, in the way that you have these mythical beings trying to figure out how they work in a superhero world. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Though, I think at one point, Perez may have been pulling our leg just a little bit. There's a line on page 13 where Zeus is talking and he says, I say thee... Enough. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, I, I, I see what you did that. there. <laughs> it was cute. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you still you know, enjoy this because, you know, we, we, we run the risk of oh, yeah. recollecting books, which is really to my raison d'etre of the podcast, you know, sort of refinding, in some cases, literally the books that I had. 
20 or 25 years ago or certainly books of the same era and there's always the fear I really dug this how much of it was nostalgia how much of it is just me at the time and the book at the time and it's just not going to hit me the same way and how much of it really is a good quality story that stands the test of time and I think in this case, it's it's a story that still stands up because of the the fact that it's so based in mythology. It's kind of timeless, right? There's no current dialogue. There's no you know trying to do mid eighties the way people talked and the way people dress. It's not like all of the the Greek goddesses are wearing leg warmers and. <laughs> You know, headbands and stuff like that. Though, to be fair, when Greg Rucka was handled the character, the gods did dress more contemporarily, but it wasn't like they were dressing like it was supposed to be 2000. It was just more modern wear than all the flowing robes and all that, which was an interesting t- uh, way to take it. I-, I don't really have a dog in the race, so <laughs> it's, not, it's not like I loved it. It's not like I hated it. I just accepted it as part of what Rucka was doing with the uh, characters. Because Wonder Woman's a tough character. She really is. And I, th- I think that's why she's been reimagined and rebooted and rethought and reconsidered so many times over the years. Since this, she's gone through many iterations and versions I was enjoying, it would have been in the 600s, the early 600s, the Odyssey storyline, which was a reboot or a reimagining, started in 2010. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was going to launch the character on a new and modern take that really tried to establish her as one of the big guns. And get a new look, this was the long pants, and J. Michael Straczynski is a controversial writer. I tend to be a fan of his in general. Mm-hmm. So they tasked, you know, JMS to, to do that. And then about four or five issues in, they announced the new 52. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was about the worst timing for a character. She got rebooted before her reboot had been rebooted. Well, uh, it, it, it's kind of funny. I hate to keep going back to Rucka and in interviews mm-hmm. that I've, I've heard and read with him. But, but he said something about Wonder Woman that kind of crystallized why she's a tough nut to crack. You know, Krypton, he said, could blow up today. And as long as baby Kal-El is found by the Kents and raised to be a good person, you know, you have Superman. You could bust a cap in the Waynes tomorrow. And as long as you had another zero to the end of the Wayne fortune, Batman can still be Batman. When you start trying to sell people on that she was made of clay and given life by the gods because her mother really wanted a child, and then she went to... I mean, you, you start losing people. And it's not just because... Some people may not want to buy into a polytheistic, you know, religion. Uh, I don't think that has as much to do with it as just mythology in general tends to muddle mainstream entertainment. Uh, I don't know why that is, but that's the way it is. It's like it's not grounded enough, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I, I've also enjoyed the uh, the Brian Azzarello run in the New 52. I, I'm way behind. I've read the first two trades of just the first 12 issues, so now they're up to what? 28 or something like this as, 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 as we record, but I like that take. Again, it's sort of a modern take, but it's putting, it's, it's continuing the mythical Olympian, the pantheon and, and playing with that squarely. There's a point in there early on where Wonder Woman talks about herself being made from clay, and whoever it is, her mom or her friend says, you gotta be kidding, right? You actually believe that? We told you that when you were two, because we didn't want to tell you about your father or what, you know, whatever the story was. I thought that was yeah. a great way of handling that because you get that sort of innocent, naive Diana, which I think works, and it works in this story really mm-hmm. well. And I think conceptually that can work. I mean, you have to develop that character over time. But with that as a starting point, I think you have potentially a good, solid character and that you can show that character development. Yeah, and the, the animated film that I mentioned before was actually really good. I enjoyed it. It really played like you would want to see a live-action Wonder Woman play out, because you had the the gods element of it, but you also had Steve Trevor, and you had fighter planes, and you had her in her costume. And, you know, she again, she's a tough nut to crack, because a lot of people want to just say she's for lack of a better term, she's the female Superman, and she's really not. I mean, she's of his power level. And I think, you know, if Superman is the all that is man in the DC universe, though I'm sure some people would say Batman fits that bill these days. 
But if Superman is like the height of male superhero, Wonder Woman by default, and because there aren't that many of them, and the fact that she's been around in the culture, Super Friends is 40 years old now. You know, and she was a main part of that cast throughout all of the iterations. You know, the Linda Carter series Absolutely. is still loved by you know generations of fans. Going from you know my my, man- my former manager, she left recently, loved the Linda Carter Wonder Woman when she was growing up, and you know I watched it in syndication because I was a little too young to watch it as it was coming on, but still that's part of the fabric of my comic book youth. So I think every, it, she's one of those characters that everybody knows, but nobody really knows what to do with. And everyone overthinks it to the point where you have movie executives saying that you can't have a Wonder Woman film because it just wouldn't work. And we could argue about that all day. I'm, I do think there's, there is some extra pressure on Wonder Woman. I think there's extra pressure on Superman as well. Mm-hmm. But I think there's extra pressure on Wonder Woman in, in the sense that the Green Lantern movie didn't stop movies in their track didn't stop superhero movies in their tracks yeah didn't stop dc in its tracks didn't stop male sci-fi cosmic heroes in its tracks i think there's fear valid or not that a failed wonder woman movie would end the dc cinematic universe would end female-led action movies in its tracks you know and etc and whether those are valid fears or not i think there's a sort of extra pressure in how you handle her. Yeah, it's like the Electra movie failed. But that had nothing to do with Electra. It had nothing to do with Jennifer Garner. It had everything to do with it was an awful, awful script. So, and and it, it could have been something good. And, you know, they, they've been talking about a Black Widow movie. Right. Uh, which I think could totally work. And, and, and I'm wondering if Warners is kind of waiting for them to do that, see if that flies. Right. And then to go forward, though, to be fair, they're putting Wonder Woman in the next... I, I just call it a DC Universe film at this, at this point. point. It's, I it's, think it's, it's going to... It's not a Superman sequel anymore, which I'm okay with, by the way. I don't... It, I don't know. it may or may not be a Justice League movie. It's going to be yeah. something. I, I like you, DCU. So, what? you know, it's in, introducing the three big characters in one film, so... Right. It's early on in that process, but just in general, what are your thoughts on, on what you've heard about Gal Gadot and sort of where that movie is going. You know, I, I have no problem with her because, well, I'm not all that familiar with her, so I can't say one way or the other, but they chose her for a reason. Zack Snyder cast Man of Steel perfectly, so any casting decisions he makes, I'm pretty much behind. I'm very excited, and this is going to sound like I'm picking on him, but I'm, I'm, I'm very excited that they're using Goyer's script as a template at this point right. and having someone come in and rewrite it because the scuttlebutt is is that Warner Brothers has taken it from being a Man of Steel sequel into being a, a DC Universe film to introduce a bunch of characters all at once uh, using the success. Not as successful as Thor Iron Man, but still, you know, compared to other uh, Superman films of the last decade or so. Everything I've heard, even Ben Affleck getting cast as Batman, I haven't, I've been like, okay, you, you got my right. attention. Let's right. see where this goes. To, uh, to bring it back to comics, but keep it in, in the current day just for a second. Curious, as the resident supermanologist of the potosphere, how do you feel just in general about a Superman-Wonder Woman dating romantic relationship, either conceptually plus ha- how it's happened in the DCU? It helps that it's a new reality and that you know him and Lois aren't together, which I think is how it should be. But I have always been of the opinion, and I think Kingdom Come played into this. But Lois is Superman's love, but she's his human love. And eventually, she's going to die, and he's not. So that kind of leaves Wonder Woman there to not be his backup, because that sounds terrible. But I think it's just one of those things that would eventually happen anyways. I have been very impressed with how DC has handled their relationship because when it was first announced, it seemed to be just a big, huge, like, hey, they're together and look at them kissing and we're going to be on Good Morning America. But, you know, John's actually played with it in Justice League. And to my mind, though Greg Pak is slowly changing this, Superman Wonder Woman is the best Superman book on the stands right now. I mean, just in terms of getting Superman and, and, and having and exploring that relationship and how it would work. 
I think Charles Soule has done a fantastic job. There was this great moment in the second issue where they're sitting there talking to Apollo. And Apollo says something and Superman's like, you know, all due respect, sir, you better stop talking about my girlfriend like that. <laughs> it, was, it was this really human moment where you're just sitting there as a, you know, as a guy who's very protective of my own wife, but knows, knows that she can take care of herself. There comes that point where you're like, as much as she can take care of your, herself, it's, you know, you're going to step forward and say, look, you know, enough. So it's and the artwork is fantastic. Tony Daniels doing a great job with both characters. So I like them together as it stands. It just seemed to me it opened up so many potential storylines like you're describing. It's sort of like anything that is a big concept. It's not that you do it. It's what you do with it after you've established it. You can kill Superman. That's fine the real test of whether it's going to work is what you do next. You can break Batman's back. How do you explore that further? And, you know, with Wonder Woman, they tried to do that by taking her out of the costume for a little while and putting Artemis as Wonder Woman. Now, I have not read those issues yet, though I am actually getting the trade in the mail very soon. It seems that if you can if you can do any... Like, this story is a good example that we talked about tonight. It's not Wonder Woman as the challenge of the gods. That's a great plot, but why is it happening and how is it affecting her as a character? Well, you managed to bring it back around to this issue. Is there anything else you want to add? His, his pan is really creepy. <laughs> I think he captures that very well, so... Not to speak for Mike, but I think he agrees with me. The verdict on Wonder Woman 10, very solid issue. Entertaining story, great art. we just say George Perez, leave it at that. And, and it did what the first issue of an arc is supposed to do. It made me want to read the rest of the arc, which I don't think we have. And by we, I mean Emily. That wraps up my coverage. Wait, that wraps up our coverage of Wonder <laughs> Woman 10. Bringing episode 20 of the Quarterbin to a close. Mike, thank you so much for joining me in this discussion. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I had a great time. Tell us all the places, if you can remember all of them. Do you have like one of those quarterback wristbands? Uh, Just as a reminder <laughs> of all the various websites and podcasts we can find you on. But tell us the blogging, the website, the podcasts. Hit us with everything. Okay. Views from a Long Box can be found at viewsfromalongbox.com. General Comics Talk. Uh, I tend to talk about Superman and Batman a lot, but uh, if you want to hear me talk about Batman, there is a Batman show out there that I may get back to at some point called Bailey's Batman Podcast, which can be found at baileysbatmanpodcast.com. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast with Jeffrey Taylor can be found at both uh, the Superman homepage and my Superman blog, Fortress of Baileytude. So I really need to get t-shirts at some point, I think. I'm sure you've been told this before but one of the greatest blog names ever. <laughs> I got to thank uh, a guy I used to hang out with named Jeff Paramore for coming up with that because I, I joked about it and he actually told me, Mike, you, you need to make t-shirts of that. <laughs> so when I when I started my own site, it seemed like the thing to do. And I actually got contacted by another Bailey who was mad that I had taken it from him. So but, it's got the Superman reference, obviously, with the fortress, but... It is, it's your thoughts. It is Bailey's Tood. I like it. I like it. Okay, I never thought that, but I am now going to say I did. To, that so. is, to me, it's Bailey's Attitude. I like it. <laughs> uh, but you also have over at Two True Freaks, Comics Monthly Monday, and Tales of the JSA, and over Yay! at Spider-Man. <laughs> and over at Sp <laughs> The most eagerly anticipated <laughs> return of a podcast ever. <laughs> The amount of people that wanted that show to come back, I think pretty much it's, it's like all that energy coalesced and forced Scott and I to get <laughs> off our butts and do it. But also, uh, like I said, uh, I'm back on the Spider-Man Crawl Space show. It's a monthly show. About three episodes come out a month or so uh, where we talk about the, the currents going on of Spider-Man, which is kind of an interesting creative exercise for me as I am not as knowledgeable about Spider-Man as other characters that I talk about. Great. Again, great to have you here. In episode 21, I'll be wrapping up the miniseries Adam Strange, The Man of Two Worlds, by discussing book three in that series. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, 
and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. And, uh, you know, having done a little bit of taking live callers on the Radio KL Live show that we do every Monday night over at the Superman homepage, that's a completely different world of podcasting. Uh, because you are not only dealing, you, you have to vamp. You can't stop talking. There is no, I'm going to pause for a second and cough and take a drink of water or whatever. You just have to keep going because that's, it's live. So I, my hat's off to Scott Rifen uh, for his ability right. to, to uh, do that on a daily basis. So I'm just going to just compliment Scott all over the place, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of editing the show. <laughs> I started off my podcasting efforts as one of the rotating hosts on the Book Guy show, and that is a live-to-tape situation. I don't think anything's been cut, edited, bleeped, stopped. <laughs> maybe it's the control freak in me, but uh, <laughs> I like uh, I like the edit button. That comes in very handy. After a while, uh, here's a little tech talk for people, because if, if Trent and Scott can do it on their Shadow of the Empire show. We can do it here, damn it. But you get to a certain point when you're recording by yourself that you know where you've taken a breath. You can kind of plan for your screw-ups. Like, when you start messing up, you can pause for a second, let the let the counter run so that you know when you marry the two points together that you're editing out, it sounds smooth. And uh, background music helps in that because you know, then people are kind of focused on two different things. But That's now, you know, with the background music you play, this is probably the classiest podcast I've ever been on. <laughs> You've got that classical music. We're trying to raise IQs of, of unborn children all <laughs> over the Internet. That is, that is the secondary purpose of the Quarterman Podcast. A little culture. You know, you really should do, like, Doom's Guide to Child Rearing. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the first few, few points might be obedience. I think we start there. <laughs> Tales of the JSA promo is going in right here, by the way. Okay, very good. Got to cut a new one together, but the old one will work just fine. I did, uh, I hope Scott doesn't take it personally, I did cut out some of the music at the end. It's about a minute promo and then a minute of music. Yeah, well, I'm the one who cut the promo together, okay, so, okay. so I, I don't take it. I, I realize that Every time I listen to it, I'm like, did we really do that? God, I didn't know how <laughs> to cut a promo music, back but, then. Yeah. I just didn't know how to cut a promo. Yeah. That was my problem. So. Well, I mean, obviously this episode's going to go long, but in the 20-minute episodes, I can't do more than a two, two minutes of promos. It just, I just don't feel like I should. You know, So I look for the 45-second promos. Just to tell you, you are, getting the, you are getting the full Michael Bailey podcasting experience as Boo is sleeping in my lap as yes. we talk. So. Yes. <laughs> Score. Eisenberg is Lex Luthor. You know, it's going to be That's Luther. An interesting one. That's an it's going to be Luther doing one. cardio. <laughs> I am just kind of tired in general of going on Facebook every time a new announcement is made and yeah. seeing everyone melt down. I'm really reserving a lot of my opinions until I see at least a trailer. You know, you've, you've li- listened to the show for the synopsis. I'll just run right into my synopsis, and I'll, I'll you know I'll toss it over to you. But when you get to the end, with your um, to be continued or whatever sort of your end is, you know, just go silent for a couple of seconds, and we'll go right into a promo from that. And then the page turning sound effects. Exactly. I, I, th- I think I'm going to drop in a couple, like when I introduce you. Anytime you mention any of your sites, you know, instead of a ding. <laughs> <laughs> in the page turn for you. Uh, see, what I like about you, Mike, and, and it's, it's, it's even like the relatively geeky name, and probably other people saw, caught it as well, but you said it, and I appreciate that. 
<laughs> the people have noticed there's a page turn, but no one thought it was cool enough to mention it. I tend to like things like that. It, it separates you from the pack, so... And I like the fact that it, it we're reading a comic, so the page turns. Yeah. I was like, like I said, stole that from the book guy show, which made perfect sense there, too. With you, Also so. with your snazzy uh, outro there. <laughs> well, that's just, that's just so you know that the podcast is over. I need someone to do that for me. I just... <laughs> I am Michael Bailey. Professor! Professor.